Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Death's construction in the fields of bodies burning as the war machine keeps turning. Death and hatred to mankind, poisoning their brainwashed minds. Welcome to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite. Listen to the Anarchist Woolless Week, Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse. Listen to analysis of local, national, international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Here we are on the Anarchist Woolless Week, streaming live on 3cr.org.au courtesy of the Community Radio Network. What nice people. And I, to- I was told that the uh, delegates who went from 3CR to the Community Radio Network yearly shindig, skirts up Mother Brown, or is it knees up Mother Brown, uh, little shindig, you know, there's, she met a few people. They met a few people who listened to the Anarchist World this week or who broadcast the Anarchist World this week on their local regional community radio station, which it is great to know. All right. Now, let's not forget what we're here for. I'm not here to die for God. I don't care what type of, you know, Heinz variety it is, which 57 Heinz variety being God it is. I'm not here to die for the... Queen, you know, royalty. How disgusting. And we're not here to die for the state. And we're here on the planet to interact with each other and ensure that we all somehow, somehow all survive in a reasonable state. Not just in terms of our own individual survival, but in terms of our community survival, the environmental survival, the survival of every other living thing on this planet. Everyone know what anarchy is all about? An anarchist society is a voluntary non-hierarchical society based on the creation of political and social structures, which are based on equal decision-making power. That's direct democratic principles. The people involved in decision make that decision and elect or appoint delegates to coordinate those decisions at a local, regional or national level. It's a society where wealth is held in common and used for the common good. Now, what I'm going to do for the first part of the program, I am going to try to bring listeners up to speed with the Syrian situation because there is so much garbage floating around what is actually happening in Syria. And it may involve a history lesson, and it may take 10 minutes or so. But I think in order for us to understand what is not just happening in Syria, but the 
direct consequences of that civil war, we need to understand who are the players on the ground, who are their proxy supporters, and what's going on. Now, the Assad family of the Ba'ath Party, the Syrian Ba'ath Party, ruled Syria for decades. And it's not unusual when you've got a secular type of a dictatorship for people to rise up. And about 30 years ago, when uh, the Karad Assad's father was in power, the people of Homs rose up, and uh, in a classical, secular, dic- dictatorial way, um, the Assad family resolved the issue by killing about 50,000 50, people in that city and raising the city. So historically, historically, Arab nationalism has been or had been an important component of the independence struggle in the Middle East since the partition of the Middle East after the 1970 Balfour Agreement. So what's that got to do with Syria today? Well, about four years ago, during the heady days of the Arab Spring, there was a civil uprising in Syria, a relatively peaceful mass civil uprising against the Assad Ba'ath Party secular dictatorship. Now, within a few months, that had spiralled into a uh, bloody conflict where the Assad regime was using all the means at its disposal, like it did 30 years ago, to uh, suppress that uprising. And that was an uprising which wasn't based on initially on religious ideas, but based on the concept of people having the ability to control their own lives and determine the type of political structures which rule them. Now, as the Syria was a relatively small country geographically, the number of people in it were about 50, I think it's about 15 million people, it didn't take long for the uh, country to fracture. And those activists who'd been involved in that civil, non, civil peaceful struggle for radical social change soon found themselves outmanoeuvred and outgunned and outflanked very quickly by people with a nationalist or ethnic or religious agenda. So what we saw for at least three and a half years was this bitter, nasty, four- or five-way struggle for control, which led to over half the population fleeing into surrounding countries like uh, Lebanon and Turkey and Jordan, and which saw over 250,000 people killed in that struggle. And what we saw was the rise of militia groups in the area of the country which was not controlled by Assad's military forces and his allies, and I'll talk about them in a minute. And we saw the rise of the uh, 
Kurdish independence movement with a Kurdish minority in Syria and became involved in that struggle, which they'd even been involved in for decades for uh, Kurdish independence and the creation of independent Kurdistan. And again, although there are various factions within the Kurdish independence movement, all the factions are basically secular. Then you had the Al-Nusra Front, which was an Al-Qaeda spin-off in Syria, which has a religious fascist agenda, but also an anti-imperialist and anti-occupation agenda, which crosses all factions within the Sunni faith, sorry, within the Muslim faith, Sunni, Shia, etc. Then we had in Iraq the creation of a political movement and a social movement and a cultural movement which grew out of the ashes of the Iraq conflict and this was decades, over a decade of war waged in that country by Western forces, including Australia, beginning in 2003, which was designed primarily to oust another secular dictator, Saddam Hussein, and the Ba'ath Party from power in Iraq. And the creation of ISIL, or ISIS, or Islamic State, whatever you like to call it, was based on strict interpretation of the Quran, which only saw the Sunni majority as the legitimate followers of Islam. And their policy was very simple. They do have a policy. They do have an ideology. They do have a mechanism via which they control people and provide services to the populations they uh, have captured. That was a strict, literal interpretation of the Koran, you know, based on a Sunni interpretation where, you know, you've got middle-aged practices coming into play. So we saw the rise of a political group which again tried to get a foothold in Syria and succeeded in getting a foothold in Syria and was involved in a uh, a conflict. Then you had what was called or is called the Free Syrian Army, which is a coalition of groups in Syria which are supported by the United States government and are bankrupt by the United States government and involved in a a four-way tussle against the Kurds the Turkomen, and I'll talk about them later on, the El Nusra Front, as well as the Assad regime. So we had a classical civil war situation when the power vacuum which was created with the removal of the Assad governments from parts of Syria was filled by militias and each militia had its own 
political, social, nationalist, religious agenda. And most of these people spent more time fighting amongst themselves, trying to gain territory, than they did fighting against the Assad regime. Now, in this, you know, in this pot, we saw the rise of ISIL. We saw the rise of Sunni religious fascism, and we, because of their previous experiences in Iraq over a decade of struggle and their alliances with the remnants of the uh, al-Baf regime in Iraq, they're actually able to be a quite an effective fighting force and quickly overran large segments of Iraq, the Sunni segments, because obviously the Sunni population had to a large degree been isolated from the political process by a Shia-dominated government which was supported by Iran. So let's get back to Syria. Let's see what's happening. So I understand today a Russian jet's been knocked out of the skies by Turkey. Now what's happened over the last year is that Syria's become a proxy war for all the major powers in the region and further out. The Russians' intervention in Syria has tipped the balance militarily back into the the favour of the Assad regime, which is supported because the Assad regime is basically made up of Alawites, which is another Muslim group, a little bit like Christians, you know, plenty of Christian churches, plenty of Muslims, you know, different interpretations of the Quran. And what we've seen is a coalition of the Alawites and Shias in a struggle against Sunnis to some degree. So on the Assad side, we've got the Russian government, which is obviously a secular government, which is attempting to regain its prominence in the world after the demise of the Soviet Union in 1989. Now, putting their military forces in Syria has made it much more easier for the Assad's forces who were supported by Hezbollah, which again is part of the government in Lebanon, which is a Shia militia, which is bankrolled by Iran, and the Iranian government is a Shia government, Shia Muslim government. It's a, it's a religious kind of semi-democracy. So you've got you've got the so you've got the Iran government and you've got the Iraq government which is basically Shia dominated. You've got Hezbollah and you've got the Russians who've all aligned themselves with the Assad regime. Now on the other side you have ISIL which is pursuing its own agenda to create a caliphate based on their strict interpretation of the Quran, where you've got beheadings and slaves and, you know, goes on and on, the type of things you see in a horror comic. So they're running their own race, and they're the ones who are currently being 
isolated and most likely will be wiped off the face of the earth in the next year or two. Then you've got the Al-Nusra front, which, as I said, has got a wider perspective. It includes all Muslims in its ranks. It's got an anti-Western agenda. And it's been around for a number of decades, as we've seen. And uh, it's uh, got troops on the ground in Syria. And again, they're basically fighting their own battle. And sooner or later, they will find that they... And again, they will find that they most likely will be removed from the scene. Then you've got the nationalist minorities. You've got the Kurds, who've become the darlings of the West in the last 12 months because they've been doing most of the fighting a very sophisticated uh, military force whose primary goal is to create an independent Kurdistan which straddles Turkey, Iraq, Iran and Syria. They are a people with their own language, their own culture, their own history, but like the Palestinians don't have a nation state. So they most likely will coalesce with the autonomous Kurdish region in Iraq into a nascent Kurdistan because obviously they're not been fighting all this war for nothing. Now on the other side, you've got the Saudi royal family, a very nasty, very nasty feudal monarchy which practices many of the same type of punishments and policies that are uh, practised by ISIL in their captured areas, who is the West's second greatest ally in the Middle East. And then you've got the United Arab Emirates and Qatar, which are all Sunni-dominated countries, who are putting their uh, money and time behind the uh, Sunni religious fascists in the area and they're involved in this uh, battle then you've got the western funded and dominated United States funded and dominated three Syrian army which is a, a, a minor player currently but it does protect United States interests in the region in Syria and that grew out of the uh, civil resistance which occurred to the Assad regime four years ago and then you've got Turkey. Now, Turkey has been involved in a th- five-decade struggle against the Kurds, which has led to the, the death of thousands, tens of thousands of people in that region of the world over the past five decades. It continues to be involved in struggles against the Kurds and continues to bomb their various political factions both in and out of Turkey. And then you've got the Turkomen, who are basically a small ethnic group on the Syrian border with Turkey who share allegiance with Turkey. And what happened today was the Russian jets were bombing the Turkomen in order to soften up the targets for the Assad regime to uh, take control of uh, more of more of its borders. And... Uh, one of their jets may have strayed into the uh, Turkish airspace for two or three seconds and it was uh, 
blown out of the air because obviously the Turks were quite concerned that one of their major allies was being bombed by the Russians. So it is a complex situation. So who are the losers? Well, the losers are the Syrian people. Half of the population, over 7 million, is now left, forced out of Syria. Most of them languishing in uh, refugee camps in Jordan, in Lebanon, in Turkey, and to a lesser degree in Iraq and Iran. Now, when food was cut off, food aid was cut off a few months ago, we saw a huge shift of people into Europe to remind the European that this is a war of their own making to some degree. And the displacement of so many people is a direct consequence of the inability of the big five in the United Nations, those who have veto power, United States, France, England, China and Russia, to come to some type of agreement regarding United Nations intervention in Syria to have some type of ceasefire. So what's happening currently is the two large proxy powers in the region, the United States and Russia, and their various supporters and allies, are trying to gain as much territory as possible before some type of United Nations intervention occurs, before some type of ceasefire occurs. But that won't occur until ISIL and the Al-Nusra Front, to a lesser degree, have been uh, neutralised. So I did my best. It's not a complex situation. It's a simple situation. The big losers are people like you and me in Syria, people who want to live in a civil society, people who want to, uh, you know, rid themselves of a secular dictator, people who want to rid themselves of religious fanatics, people who want to control their own destiny in a collectivist uh, manner. These are the big losers, the civilian population, who continue to make up 90% of the uh, casualties in this war, as we've seen most modern wars. You listen to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia and the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. My name's Joseph Rusko, I'm hosting today's war. Look, the reason I've spent 20 minutes looking at the situation is very simple. I think people need to understand what's happening, because over the last next two to three months, you are going to see a lot of manoeuvring uh, in terms of people trying to gain territory and eliminate the ISIL threat and then gain territory and have a, you know, a nice little Cold War proxy war and proxy division of the country. Let's move on. Now, there's a lot of wonderful things happening, a lot of wonderful things happening. Although there are a lot of horrible things happening in the world today, there's always beautiful, wonderful things happening. And most of those wonderful things that are happening are directly related to people's efforts and struggles. And there are many struggles currently taking place in this country that we need to uh, acknowledge. Now, first of all, I'd like to talk about the Tanamui Mulbohina uh, movement or um, campaign that we've had for the last decade. It's finally come to a head. 
on Wednesday the 25th of November, which if you're listening to this program today, it's today, the Melbourne City Council will announce the final finalist, uh, the final design for the monument, which will be built in the next six months. So that particular struggle, which has spanned over a decade, that part of that struggle, and that's only part of that struggle, has to come to fruition, will be coming to fruition. This will be the first time in this country's history that a capital city will establish a major monument to the frontier wars, the Tanaminawai Morbohina, Aboriginal freedom fighters who fought for the things that we tend not to fight for. Our language, our culture, our families, our lands, our way of life. So those of you who are living in Melbourne, today is a great day. I've seen the final design that's been chosen and it is a great design. It's a 21st century design but it encapsulates the essence of that struggle for self-determination and freedom. And Melbourne will be the first city which will have a major monument to the frontier wars. And it's important that we don't forget how this country was built. The atrocities that we see in the Middle East pile into insignificance when we look at the atrocities which occurred in this country when the colonisation process began, which spanned over 100 years, which continue which continue to have a major impact on the Indigenous people in this country. So this monument is just one small step Nothing more, but it is something we need to celebrate and, more importantly, replicate across the country. Because in every corner of this land and of the islands surrounding this continent, people gave up their lives to protect a way of life that they had enjoyed for over 40,000 years. And these people have been written out of Australian history. So I encourage you to visit the monument when it's finished, hopefully by about June next year. Now, if you are in Melbourne tomorrow, the 26th of November, the Melbourne City Council has organised, with a lot of work by a lot of people, a Marlborough here in Tanaminaway exhibition which will be held in the Melbourne City Gallery, which is the uh, Melbourne City Council Gallery at 110 Swanson Street, which is at the City Hall there, and the entrance is off Halifax Street from 6pm to 7.30pm tomorrow night is the official opening, to which I, as the convener of the Tuanaminuwe Mobile Hina Commemoration Committee, which is the organisation which set this train of events in 2004 invite you to come along and celebrate this achievement you will see there the commemoration you'll see at the exhibition huge number of objects which are important to this struggle 
and you will also see the final design as well as the two runner-ups. So join us. Thursday the 26th of uh, November, 6pm, Melbourne City Gallery, 110 Swan Street. Just go to the Melbourne Town Hall, ask for where the City Gallery is. It's off, entrances off Halifax Street. Uh, so you go to the corner of uh, Swanson and Collins Street and you can't go wrong. So uh, it's there. We fought long and hard for this. We fought for a public exhibition. The public exhibition will be open for the next four months. Take your children. Teach them about history. But the important thing is this struggle is a template for struggles across this country. What happens when Indigenous and non-Indigenous radicals come together, come together to lift the lid on what's actually happening in this country? So come along, and if you can't make it to the uh, tomorrow night, you've got four months to look at the uh, exhibition. And don't forget that Wednesday the 20th of January marks the 174th anniversary of the execution of the two freedom fighters, Tanaminawaya Mōbōhina. And once again, the Tanaminawaya Mōbōhina Commemoration Committee will be holding its annual um, commemoration, which starts at midday sharp. Now let's move on. Now just in case you've forgotten, and next week we're going to have a special, that's right, a special Eureka program. It's all going to be about the Eureka Rebellion and the significance of the Eureka Rebellion 161 years later. Just in case you've forgotten, because historical events do have profound impacts on what's happening in Australian society today. And I'll go through the program today in case you're in two minds about whether you're going to take the day off or turn up at Ballarat. doesn't matter where you live in Australia. There's plenty of time. Now, the Reclaim, the Radical Spirit of the Eureka Rebellion celebrations have been organised by the Anarchist Institute now for the last 13 years. This is the 13th year, 14th year they've been organised. And the reason they were organised, first and foremost... The reason they were organised was to reclaim that radical spirit which was being rewritten, not out of, just out of the history books, but was being rewritten out of the social consciousness of the people of this country. And I think it's important that we reclaim that day. If we don't reclaim that day, if we don't celebrate the radical content, if we don't celebrate the central elements of the Eureka Rebellion, concepts which are as important today in 2015 as they were in 1854, direct action, direct democracy, solidarity, internationalism, who else will celebrate that day? And as I said, this year is no exception from 4am to 10pm. We have a whole host of events happening, all free. You don't have to ring anybody except for one thing, and we'll talk about that later on. Just turn up. We start off at the corner of Stall and Eureka Street, Ballarat, at Eureka Park. Now, if you ever go to Eureka Park, on down in the gully is the Museum of Australian Democracy at Eureka, which is not the Eureka Battle site. Just climb up the hill and go to the corner of Eureka and Stool Street and there you are, where the cannons are, believe it or not, in the old Eureka Hall, that's the battle site. We'll be there at 4am. 
If you can't make it at 4am, don't despair. The, pro- the uh, first two hours of the, uh, of the, uh, of the commem- first two hours of these celebrations will be broadcast live on Community Radio 3CR. And if you're not in, if you're not in range, Community Radio 3CR, don't despair. It's, you can access the broadcast by going to 3cr.org.au as it happens. So 4am to 6am, simple, direct ceremony, very simple. Form a circle, recite the Eureka Oath, and everybody there has the opportunity to explain why they are there at 4am, what it means, why they are at the very battle site at the very time the battle occurred in 1854, where they came from, who they are, why they're there, what are they celebrating. And it's a great thing to bring children to. Pull them out of school that day and bring them to something that uh, may have an impact on them for uh, you know years to come. At 6am, we walk at least 30 metres to Eureka Hall for a communal breakfast. You bring your own food and drinks. If you can't bring your own food and drinks, I'm sure you'll be able to share some. But uh, some people take the chance between 6am and 9am to have a sleep in their cars or on the, uh, you know, in the park there. And then from 9am we march from Eureka Park to Bakery Hill to reaffirm the Eureka Oath. Between 9.30 and 10.30am, we present the Eureka Australia Day medals at Bakery Hill. And uh, this year there'll be six or seven Eureka Australia Day medals which will be presented. Some people will be able to collect the medals on their behalf. Others will have other people collecting them for them on their behalf. 11am, Eureka Stump Orations outside the Ballarat Town Hall to reclaim the radical spirit of the Eureka Rebellion. It goes on and on. 11.30am, we walk to the old Ballarat Cemetery to pay our respects to all those who died in the Eureka Battle who were buried at the old Ballarat Cemetery. Please bring flowers and some Eureka flags. You know, every time we go there, you know, down at the Soldiers Memorial down the hill, flowers, flags, speeches, the Eureka, the men who died at the Eureka Battle, nothing. No Eureka flag, no flowers. We ensure we go there we pay our respects. Then we have a light lunch just outside the cemetery, being fruit and drinks, and then we walk from the old Ballarat Cemetery to the Museum of Australian Democracy at Eureka in the Eureka Park to look at the Eureka flag and discuss the Eureka flag. 3pm, uh, afternoon tea at Eureka Park. 7pm to 10pm, the Eureka Annual Dinner, which will be held... This, which will be held this year at a different location as the location we, we're going to is under renovations. It'll be held at 121 Grand Street at the uh, pub at 121 Grand Street. And uh, speaking to the publicans and their assistants, there's a great menu available uh, for $15, one course, $20, two courses, you know, very cheap. So there's no cover fee to come in. The Black Orchid String Band, the West Papuan uh, Black Orchids will be the entertainment for the evening, as they were last year and the year before. Seating's limited to around 90, so if you want a seat, I mean, there's a verandas and you can stand up all night if you want to, but if you're elderly, if you want a seat, give us a ring, 
and we'll reserve a seat for you. You don't have to reserve to come to the Eureka dinner. But if you want a seat, if you want to be guaranteed a seat, especially if you're elderly, you know, or infirm or whatever, you don't want to stand up for three hours listening to speeches, give us a ring, 0439 395 489, or write to us at Post Office Box 20 Parkville, 3052 or email us at com, and we'll put you down you know as a um, we'll get a seat for you as I said before great night the guest speaker this night uh, on the third is uh, Brett C. Edgerton who's the secretary of the Union Unions Ballarat and the Western Region in an era in an era where unions have been legislated out of existence and we are seeing what happens when unions are legislated out of existence. It's important that we have trade unionists involved in the Eureka Rebellion celebrations. And the topic the topic the topic for discussion is the role the eighteen fifty four Eureka Rebellion continues to play in the twenty first century Australian trade union movement. And just in case you don't think it has any role to play Think again. When the CFMEU, the most powerful union left in this country, cannot fly the Eureka flag on a building site, cannot fly the Eureka flag, you understand the essence and the importance of that flag and what it means to people. When the Ballarat City Council refuses for 161 years to fly the Eureka flag, on the main flagpole over the Eureka City Hall, sorry, over the Ballarat City Hall, on the 3rd of December, not even during the 150th anniversary celebrations 11 years ago or the 160th anniversary celebrations last year, you begin to understand how powerful this symbol is. And if you're wondering how next week, as I said, I'll do a special program on Eureka because I do believe... It has a pivotal role to play in the egalitarian, direct, democratic, radical movement which is part and parcel of the history of this country and continues to be part and parcel of the history of this country. And if you wonder, you know, how to define it, it's defined in the Eureka Oath which was taken on Bakery Hill on the 29th of November, 1854 by about 500 poorly armed miners who had decided to finally rebel against the British authorities. We swear by the Southern Cross to stand truly by each other and fight to defend our rights and liberties. Now, if if you're still standing up and you want to make your way to Katoomba in New South Wales, that's right, Katoomba, on Saturday the 5th of November... At 7pm at the old Katoomba Library is the Pikeman's Dog Fiesta. And it's interesting, if you want more, I'll give you more information about that next week. But if you want more information, you can just go to the Anarchist Media Institute website, anarchistmedia.org, and it's all there. It's interesting to look at the Ballarat Advocate on the 4th of December 1854, which was the day after the uh, rebellion. It's dated Ballarat. Sunday, 3rd of December, 5am. This morning, Eureka Goldfields presents a piteous scene of horror and misery. Women roam the camp, crying out aloud for their men. 
their children at their skirts, wailing for their fathers. In the midst of a desolate and heartbreaking sight, a lone dog epitomises tragedy for continuous and mournful howl. It's quite interesting. The pikeman's dog has been a fascinating story, and I'll talk more about that next week, but uh, the pikeman's dog and what Eureka was all about will be celebrated at Katoomba, at the old Katoomba Library at 7pm on the 5th of December. Yours truly, yes, don't ask me how I'm going to get there, is is the guest speaker. Music is by The Bard with his commissioned song, The Pikeman's Dog, and there's a short film called Underlying Rights. Again, this is real stuff happening in real time, which you're invited to. Now, if you want some information regarding that particular event, I've got a website, S-O-L-E-R, S-O-L-F-E-R, Sulfur, S-O-L-F-E-R, I-N-O, cinemas.com, S-O-L-F-E-R, soulforinocinemas.com, S-O-L-F-E-R-I-N-O, cinemas.com. Just put the Pikeman's dog, Katoomba, and I'm sure you'll come up with something. And the reason this has been held in that location is across the country, as we know, developers have got the green light to knock down whatever they like. Now, the old Katoomba Library is a community centre in Katoomba, and uh, it's important it's used, and this is just one of the many events that have been organised by the com to ensure that uh, it continues to be uh, an important part of uh, Katoomba. And if that's not enough, don't forget, and I'll talk about this a bit more extensively next week, the West Papuan Rent Collective. Christmas is coming up. You want to buy somebody a present? You want to buy somebody a present? Make him a present. Make him a member of the West Papuan Rent Collective. For $30 a month, you can actually bankroll the West Papuan Independence Office in Collins Street in Docklands, an office which has been used across the country, an office which has been used across the world to promote West Papuan independence around the world. $30 a day, you can make a huge, huge impact on an independence struggle on our doorstep. I know that everybody keeps talking about West Papua. Sorry, everybody keeps talking about the Middle East and Syria. But how many people know that over 500,000 West Papuans have died in the independence struggle in West Papua since 1961? And this is from a population of less than 2 million. Extraordinary events have occurred in that country. Less than 200 kilometres from Darwin. Nobody talks about this is, again, this is another Anarchist Institute initiative. We're involved in a lot of initiatives which we're speaking about today. And the West Papua Independence Movement, is Rent Collective, is our initiative. It is something that we have been involved in now for two years. And through the generous support of our members, we have been able, to a significant degree, to help promote the idea of West Papua Independence in the community. These are initiatives which have been taken by radical elements in this society. Let's not forget how important it is, you know, 
to have a radical perspective in Australia in 2015. All right, let's move on because there are a lot of things happening, as I keep saying, and there's a lot of things happening in our world. Now, the latest thing is the competition report. Now, look, I'd like to congratulate Mr Malcolm Turnbull. He hasn't put a foot wrong. Now, Mr Turnbull has a problem, and it's not the Australian Labor Party which continues to push its corporatisation, deregulation, privatisation, globalisation agenda. That's not the problem. That is not the problem. The Australian Labor Party, you may as well you know, write them out of this country's history the way they're going. But it's the faction within the Liberal Party which backs Mr Abbott, who believe who know they need Tony Abbott to win the next election, but once the next election is won, they'll be back into the fray in order to push their deregulation, privatisation, globalisation, corporatisation agenda. Because Malcolm's just the front man you need in front of the organisation. He's a little bit like the ISIL recruiter. You get a nice-looking person at the front there, Roll up, roll up. When he's done his job, the boys and girls in the Liberal Party, the hard men and women, the macho boys and girls, which uh, Turnbull kind of uh, mentioned, will want their pound of flesh and will want to be back in control because that's what this is about. This is about the Liberal Party not changing its spots, but the Liberal Party actually smelling the political wind, putting somebody in power who can win them the next election, and then removing from power so they can actually implement their agenda. And it's got a two-prong, you know, it's a two-prong strategy. One, you denigrate the ALP. Two, you promote Malcolm Turnbull in the public imagination. And, you know, Malcolm's got those ideas which don't sit pleasantly with members of the Liberal Party, like marriage equality... Softly, softly on the Syrian situation. You know, what else? You know, a marriage equality, as I said before. Softly, softly, the Syrian situation. You know, speaking softly. No, this ma- ma- mask, you know, let's invade boots on the ground bullshit. Yeah, if they want boots on the ground, well, why don't they go? I'm sure we can find them a place in some type of militia group. As I said before, there's lots of militias in Syria. I'm sure they'd like Tony in their ranks. He could be a, a runner. And his budgie smugglers. Could you imagine running between uh, positions in his budgie smugglers? I mean, this is what I love about, you know, the, the God, King and, or Queen and Country Brigade. It's always somebody else's children they're happy to sacrifice on the altar of Mammon. But uh, getting back to the situation, I mean, competition. So although Malcolm may have these friendly things regarding climate change, marriage equality, softly, softly on Syria, possibly a change in the refugee policy, you know, he is still a corporatisation, deregulation, privatisation, globalisation man. And it's quite interesting to see how this part of their political agenda is now being pushed heavily in the Murdoch-owned media and heavily with the crossbenchers. And it's based on two concepts. One, don't rock the boat as far as the corporate sector is concerned and corporate power is concerned. Don't rock the boat. 
to the corporate class, the 1%ers don't pay tax, so what? Leave them alone. Leave them alone. That's the first and foremost policy. Leave them alone. Leave the current taxation laws in place, which make a mockery of the, you know, corporations, you know, paying taxation. We, you may talk about it, but as far as legislation is concerned, leave them alone. As far as the twenty percent of Australians are in investment, part of the investment class who make most of their money through investments, leave them alone. Let them legally minimise their tax to nothing. But when it comes to the fifty percent of Australians who need an income to meet their bills, fair game. Destroy their trade unions. Destroy their ability to bargain collectively. Make them all individual contractors. And what we've seen over the past few years highlights how successful that program has been to actually de-unionise the workforce, weaken the workforce and let large entities and even small businesses exploit labour to maximise their profits. We hear about Pizza Hut, 7-Eleven, Myers, subcontractors, you know, the list goes on and on and on and on and on and nothing ever happens to them. And if you look at the new competition policy, if you withdraw your labour, heavy Daily fines. As far as the public sector is concerned, every, the public sector will now have to, have to, in inverted commas, compete with the private sector to provide services. We've seen that in the welfare sector and we've seen what's happened there, where 40 cents of every dollar goes to the corporations in administration fees and and charges. We've seen how services are whittled away. We see things like the National Disability Insurance Scheme, a wonderful, wonderful concept, being eaten away by the fact that it's uh, privatised. And it, and it goes on and on. But now what we're going to see is we're going to see the wholesale privatisation of the health, the public health system. So while Malcolm tut-tuts and makes the right noises regarding climate change, marriage equality, domestic violence, you name it, he makes the right noises. In the background, in the background, we're seeing the Liberal agenda. And the problem is that the Labor Party for so long, so long, has been following that same agenda since the Hawke-Keating government was elected in the 1980s. For the last 35 years, that same deregulation, privatisation, globalisation, corporatisation agenda that nobody knows any difference. So if you're sick and tired of it, join Pipsy. Public interests before corporate interests. A growing organisation, membership now reaching 370. Hopefully be able to be registered as a political federal political party sometime early next year. We need more members and we need them today. Become a member of public interest before corporate interest today. Go to the website, pipsy.net, download the application form. Not computer literate? Ring me up, 0439 395 489, and uh, we will uh, download, uh, we'll send you some in the mail. No problem. Haven't got a phone? Write to us at Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. Interested in all the activities we've talked about today? The West Papua and Wren Collective, 
Eureka celebrations, the Pikeman's Dog celebrations in Katoomba. Um, you know, the you want to come along t- tomorrow night to the uh, Melbourne City Council, Tanaminoe Mōmōhina exhibition, which will be on for the next four weeks. Go to the website. If it's not on the website, don't despair. Give us a ring, 0439 395 489. You want change? It doesn't come by begging and beseeching. It doesn't come by, come by doffing your cap. It doesn't come by looking, you know, how, hoping the celebrities will do it for you. It only comes through you taking the action that is necessary to ensure that all Australians, all Australians, not just a few, share in the Commonwealth. Thank you once again for listening to the Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. This program has been streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. You can ring us on 0439 395 489. 0439 395 489. Yes, you can write to us, and we do get lots of letters still, and we do answer them, to Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. One third of members of PIPSI are not on the computer. Just remember that. You want to learn about PIPSI? Go to PIPSI.net. Go to their Facebook page, uh, Public Interest Before Corporate Interest. Want to learn about where the Wednesday Action Group is? Go to, go to their Facebook page, Wednesday Action Group. You wouldn't believe it. They've got a Facebook page, those old cronies. Wednesday Action Group. See what they're up to. See where they'll be next week. Join them. Join them. And if you're listening to this program somewhere else in the land of Oz, not in the city of Melbourne, and you're jealous, you can do it too. It is very simple. Just a matter of taking the initiative, getting started. You can do your own Tanaminawaya Mōbōhina commemorations you know, speak to Indigenous, local Indigenous people. See what's going on in that part of the world. Get involved. Worried about Murdoch's being the kingmaker? You can be part of Murdoch's minions. You can organise something outside their headquarters. You can organise your own Eureka celebration the 3rd of December. You don't have to come to Ballarat. You don't have to ask permission. You just do it. You know, you want to set up a PIPSI, Public Interest Before Corporate Interest branch in your part of the world? Give us a call. Become a member doesn't take long. At the end of the day, you want change, you need to struggle for it. You need to sweat for it. I mean, our forebears did it. We can do it, and we can do it once again. Thank you once again for listening to the Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station. Listen in next week on your local community radio station. Yes, we are waiting for the gods to take us to heaven. But if you ain't got the time, go anarchistmedia.org. Look at the website. Look at all the initiatives. Look at all the interests. If you listen to this program, listen in next week on your local community radio station, courtesy of the Community Radio Network. Evil minds that plot destruction. Sorcerer of death construction. An analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World This Week, Australia's Sacred Cow Slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brain
wash my hands. Oh, Lord, yeah. <laughs>